Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, December the 5th. 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, perhaps uh, the most oddly, surreally postmodern medieval city in America with its inequality and its jarring, um, jarring coexistence of enormous wealth and poverty, hope and hopelessness. We've done a lot of shows on cities, as uh, regular viewers and listeners to the show know. We, we did one with Ben Wilson last year. Um, he has an interesting new book out, Metropolis, A History of the City, which he calls humankind's greatest invention. I'm not sure if it's our greatest invention, but it's certainly one of our best uh, inventions. Uh, not always uh, unproblematic. We did a show with Edward Glazer, one of America's leading uh, experts on cities and urbanism. Um, he has a book out, which he co-authored with David Cutler, on the survival of the city in the age of isolation and in COVID. Um, done lots of different uh, shows on, on different cities. One with Berlin, uh, one on Berlin with Sinclair Mackay, a British journalist. He describes Berlin as the place in the center uh, of the world in the 20th century. Um, but I think if there is a city which can claim to be at the center of the world, it's New York. We did one with Thomas Adija, the uh, New York-based writer. He has an excellent new book out, New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess and Transformation. Um, we did a book, uh, we did a show with Dwayne Mur uh, Dwyer Murphy, who's the author of Crime Reads on, on Lit Hub, um, which uh, is a novel about uh, New York City, but also a book about, in homage of, of walking in San Francisco, uh, not in San Francisco, in New York. We're bringing those two uh, worlds together of walking in New York and New York with my uh, guest today, Michael Kimmerman. He's the architecture critic of the New York Times. He has a new book out, The Intimate City. is joining us uh, from the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Uh, Michael, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Um, you don't call it the greatest city. You don't call it the city at the heart of the world. Um, you call it the intimate city. What's so intimate about New York? For many people, particularly, I think, those who come to New York for the first time, it's anything but intimate. Why did you choose that word? Well, um, I do think it's one of the great uh, human inventions, maybe the greatest. I, I do agree with that. Uh, but I call it The Intimate City because the book is based on um, a series of walks, 20 of them. I take with different people around different neighborhoods, meaningful to them. So uh, the book essentially unfolds in an intimate way as um, the stories that are told about the city and about the people I take walks with um, uh, at the level of the curb. Um, so I think the city, you know, is a couple of things at once. It's, it's, um, it is a very great human invention. It's a project that millions and millions of people have contributed to over time. But I also think it's a, it's made up of many 
microcosms, many different smaller communities, many neighborhoods that um, that function like neighborhoods anywhere in the world. Um, and I grew up in one of them downtown. And there is a kind of um, uh, sense of, I think, ownership and connection to the city um, that takes place here for people even who move, um, you know, uh, a day or two earlier. It's difficult for tourists, I get it. Uh, you know, it's a big city. But to live here, I think, is to understand that it is a it is at once an overwhelming and a very intimate place. Uh, I mentioned the the Dwyer Murphy book, the novel about being a, a flaneur in New York in the 1980s before the digital revolution. What is it about walking, Michael, and cities? Yeah. Uh, you know, Baudelaire, of course, wrote about Paris in the 19th century. Many others have um, written about walking and cities. Are they intimately bound up with one another from your point of view? I'm guessing they are, given yeah. uh, that the book, uh, The Intimate City, uh, has the subtitle Walking New York. Yeah, I mean, I do think um, there is a way in which, you know, Milan Kundera talks about the relationship between walking and slowness and, and understanding. And, um, and I think to walk a city is to uh, take it in in a very different way, obviously, than you do in a car or in a subway. It's also different to take a walk than it is to just have a destination you get to, uh, hasten to by walking, which is how, you know, many of us naturally experience the city. This project began during COVID when the city came to a complete halt. Um, which was a very eerie experience, but it was also an occasion, a kind of opportunity to see the city as if time had paused and and to, to it sort of revealed itself and its layers, I think, in a way that can be hard to focus on when one is in a rush. There is, of course, a long tradition of walking in cities, not just Baudelaire, but Benjamin and the Situationists and so many others for whom the notion of walking the city was to get in touch with some larger sense, not just of the city itself, but of oneself. And I think that's at the heart of this project too, is a way of describing some of the people, the varied people I, I, I walk with in the process of their describing walks that are important to them. It's interesting, you mentioned uh, Benjamin and the Situationists, both of course, politically on the left, um, you write for the New York Times. I don't think you're shy to hide your politics. Is there a, a political dimension to these walks? Um, you have some walks dedicated to one kind of activism or another. New York, of course, is a city on the left, politically and culturally. Um, is the act of walking a city, Michael, also a political act? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Andrew. I mean, I think... Um... You know, I think that as, especially in a country like this, the United States, where um, so much of the nation has been built around the car, the automobile, and so much of the growth of the automobile was based upon the desecration of the city around public transit and city centers. Um, and now so much of the notion of cars um, is tied up with issues around climate um, and that inner city life uh, is 
related to a kind of climate virtuous density, um, that there might be political associations with walking. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that I, I, I didn't do a book about driving around New York, which I think is a kind of ridiculous notion. So I suppose I, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea that there is some political tint to this. But the book is not really about that exactly. It's about the fact that a city like New York, it's more so in New York, but not unlike other great and historic cities, is made up of a lot of different forces. Some of those forces are community activists and some of them are architects and engineers and some of them are politicians. Many of them are just ordinary people who leave marks in the city. Um, and I think, you know, there is a de democratic notion to that, this idea that, I mean, what is cosmopolitanism? It is the idea that we're all in some way on equal footing in a city, which is welcoming to everyone. Um, I suppose that's become a political notion uh, increasingly, but I, I find it just a fundamental idea of, of democracy. And the city enacts that democracy every day, every minute by the kind of consensual agreement we have implicit that we are going to somehow make this work, share these spaces, share this enterprise of trying to make the city uh, functional every day, something greater than ourselves. So if there are political implications with that, I'm, I'm happy with them. But this is not a book about the, the horrors of the car uh, or about uh, anything related to Democrats and Republicans per se. Um, and I hope like the city, you know, it, it has meanings that extend beyond this moment. If I could just say, Andrew, because it was born during COVID, it was born in the midst of a crisis and the city seemed to me something larger and longer lasting than that crisis. So it was something around which to uh, anchor uh, a public discussion that wasn't focused on our panic from moment to moment. You can hear sirens outside my window. And, you know, during COVID, that was the that was the the musical track of the streets in the city. The book was intended really to look at the city as a as a kind of enduring thing, a rock, uh, something we can, you know, we have built over time and that will be longer lasting than us. So again, I, 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 I like to think of it as something extending beyond our current um, highly divided politics. But as you say, there are elements in it that will be interpreted as political. Michael, you're quite an accomplished fellow. You've done so many different things. One of the things you've done is you've been a, I don't know if you'd call you a, a professional, certainly a, a semi-professional pianist. You're a highly musical fellow. Um, th this issue of what a, a city should sound like is interesting. You referred to the sirens. And of course, uh, for people who live through in New York, who survived in New York during COVID, that was the soundtrack. Is there a music to the city? Um, Steve Reich, one of my favorite um, composers, has um, done a lot yeah. of interesting work on what a modern city should sound like. What, what is the music of New York beyond the sirens? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question, Andrew. It's it's fascinating. You know, I lived in Berlin for some years, and coming back to New York occasionally, I, I was struck. Having grown up in New York, um, I came back to it and it was I suddenly was able to both see and hear it 
um, afresh. And there is a soundtrack. New York has a kind of thrum um, that is, it's, it's, it's like the bass note of the city. Um, and it's almost always there. And I think um, there is a kind of collective, sometimes the city, you know, we, we associate sound often with noise in a city. And there is a lot of noise in parts of New York. And this is one part um, where it can be noisy. But I actually think the sound of the New York of New York is is really the sound of collective voices, and I, I don't mean that in some sort of deeply abstract or poetic way. But you know, during COVID, there were two things you actually heard um, through the window. One in the empty streets was the sound of passing sirens, but the other was the sound of people every evening at seven o'clock opening up their windows, banging pots, applauding, and and uh, cheering for the emergency workers who were changing shifts at that hour. And that sound, that collective sound that echoed through the streets, it echoed here on the west side, was both in gratitude, of course, to the people who were out there, but it was also a way of letting each other, each of us letting the others know that we were here, that we were sharing this experience, that we were not alone. And that is partly what the city is about, right? This idea that somehow we are never really alone. I mean, one can be lonely in New York, of course, and one can be feel oneself alone, but there is something collective about the enterprise, as I keep saying, that is also kind of exhilarating, heartening. And it certainly was, uh, was during COVID. And as the city has come back to life, so has the sound of the city, the, the sound on the people talking on the subways, the sound of the streets when the so-called streeteries opened as if overnight, uh, people suddenly meeting each other and seeing each other again in the streets. And that collective sound, that sense that we were in this together, I think was at the heart of New York's recovery, uh, which um, you know was crucial because New York was so hard hit in those first days. You had a lovely conversation with uh, Lucy Sante in LitHub on ghostly survivals built around your book. Uh, you, you, you said nothing is permanent, especially in a city like New York. Um, this idea of, of cities and ghosts, or a month after um, the, the day of ghosts or the day of horror, um, but do cities have ghosts? Do they have a sound, a look, a feel? And are ghosts important in a city? Yeah, again, a really interesting question. I, I think I think the beauty of, of a city like New York, any historical city, is that it is it is full of ghosts. And and one of the things that happens if you walk around it, if you take the time um, and begin to not just look, but listen, smell. We haven't talked about smell, mm. um, which has such a potent Proustian um, effect as well. I, I think all of that sort of um, unleashes ghosts. It, it reveals all of these layers of, uh, that are dormant that you don't necessarily um, think of, but that add resonance to your experience and that you realize how much these spaces you walk through, these places you live, um, have already been shaped, lived in 
by people before you. I'll, I'll give you a one small example. I mean, um, I grew up in Greenwich Village. There's a street called McDougal Street. I hadn't really even myself, although I'd walked down McDougal, I grew up around the corner. My aunt and uncle lived on McDougal. I hadn't really thought about the street until I began to take one of these walks um, with a man named Andrew Dolcart, a uh, historian. And to understand how the village had developed and why there were immigrant uh, tenements on the south side of Washington Square Park, where McDougal Street is, and there were wealthier houses on the north side of Washington Square Park, why the streets had the fabric they did, why there were certain kinds of buildings, shops, comedy clubs, bars, um, LGBTQ places on one part of McDougal and not another. And it was as if a light bulb went on suddenly, even for me, even though I grew up there, um, because I suddenly, it was as if oh, it had unleashed all of these ghosts of generations past. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the beauties of the city, this idea that we are all contributing to it endlessly, and that the city, a healthy city, is constantly changing. One of the most troubling aspects, I think, of the modern American city, especially wealthier or affluent cities where there's so much inequity as there is in San Francisco and New York, is that there are a lot of forces at work trying to hold back change um, in the name of preserving either historical architecture or the character of neighborhoods, whereas in fact, so many neighborhoods have actually become vibrant and meaningful because they have changed. And those changes have brought about things which are sometimes welcome to the people who are living there and sometimes not, but, but lead us to other places, that cities that tend never to change um, are also cities that are either museums or dying. Um, and if I might just say, Andrew, I mentioned a minute ago the streeteries, these eating places that opened on a million different corners, there had been, you know, enormous resistance to removing even a single parking space in New York City uh, before COVID. But when the hospitality industry was in free fall in those early months of COVID, the city simply said that it was going to turn over about 10,000 parking spaces to businesses to take over and to place outdoor eating spots. Um, and those, those places did several things. They, first of all, allowed people to, to gather again in, in what felt like a safer environment. They reinvigorated the streets and told us how much we need each other and how much public space is meaningful to the notion of a city and to a collective enterprise of the city, the polis, but at the same time, I think they also prove that cities can, if they choose, be much more nimble than uh, we generally are, that we can change things, that we can make dramatic changes. And those changes, I think, were very important for public health. So as I keep saying, you know, I think the city is made up of all these different layers, but its true health is because we keep adding to them by changing as time goes on. You mentioned... Um... Greenwich Village, you grew up there. So you, you wrote a lovely piece uh, earlier this year on Greenwich, Greenwich Village as the storied home of Bohemia and gay history. Um, 
Stonewall, of course, and sort of, I live near the Castro in San Francisco, so there's a sort of competitiveness, I guess, between these two worlds. But I, I wonder, you know, when I go to Greenwich Village now, my son was at NYU, um, it's so prosperous, it's so wealthy. Yeah. Uh, culturally, I guess, in gendered, sexual, maybe racial terms, it's diverse, but it's not diverse in economic terms. I wonder whether one of the problems with the contemporary city is the university itself. You um, you teach at yeah. Columbia. You're very familiar with the academic map of, of New York City. We did a show last year where I thought a very good historian, Devarian Baldwin, who teaches at Trinity College. He has mm. a new book out in the shadow of the ivory tower, how universities yeah. are plundering our cities. Two of the most I guess diverse and energetic parts of New York are the areas around NYU and Columbia, and yet they're also centers of great privilege. Is the problem with a place yeah. like New York, uh, the way in which Columbia and NYU have essentially colonized the city? How, how can we make New York diverse again? It's diverse in a sense, one cultural sense, but in another sense, it's lacking any kind of diversity. Yeah, we were asking a few good questions there. Um, certainly NYU's growth in the village, which um, I grew up in and saw over time, has changed the dynamics in that neighborhood, as has essentially the, the rising real estate costs and the fact that the village, which when I was growing up there was both ethnically diverse and economically much more diverse, much more working class and middle class has become extremely affluent. So NYU has played a crucial, but not the only role in, in changing that neighborhood. And a lot of old villagers do blame NYU for, um, yeah, just essentially homogenizing um, parts of the village. My aunt and uncle that I mentioned earlier, McDougal, had originally, originally lived in tenement housing that was on the south side of Washington Square Park, where now NYU's library is, the Bogues Library. And that displaced lots of different um, people who were basically working people uh, who lived in the village. There's almost no place for them now. Universities, certainly wealthy universities, um, have played a role in changing many uh, cities and neighborhoods, not just here in New York, of course. And many of them face these tensions because uh, some of them have been in areas on the margins of wealth or in actually impoverished areas. And because so much of these universities depend, I'm sure your guest was talking about this too, on fundraising and creating kind of campuses that attract wealth, they increasingly alienate the, the neighbors that, uh, who feel displaced by them or at least uh, who feel that their neighborhoods have changed. So I, I agree with all of that. Um, but you also asked a larger question, I think, which is how do we, uh, how do we maintain or increase diversity um, in cities so as to essentially continue what has made them vibrant, meaningful, um, civic places? And one of the answers to that is we need to uh, build a lot more uh, genuinely affordable housing. Mm. Um, and one thing that that means is we have to not only um, 
subsidize that housing, but we have to agree that some of that housing will go in neighborhoods where people are resistant uh, to any new development. The village is one. <laughs> Soho right next to it is another. Um, most affluent neighborhoods uh, are happy to talk about development in poor neighborhoods, but they're not so uh, glad to see change in their own. Look at the resistance to so much of the plans to densify along transit corridors uh, in the South Bay, for instance, um, in your part of the world. Yeah. Or and in, I, uh, you know, the amazing, the, the, the astonishing story of how Marin voted against the extension of the path, which right. to me is still, it's mind boggling that they voted against that. But that's another, another book, another subject. Well, I it's not, it's not unrelated because, I mean, I think if, if we're going to talk about what makes a city great and why we, why we love cities, we, we have to talk about them as places that are alive, vibrant and, uh, and welcoming. And they, they cannot be places that have become just enclaves for the wealthy. That's, they can't, literally can't continue like that. You, and you you've traveled around the world, Michael, a lot. You, you, you had a time as a borough correspondent for the New York Times. When you go to a big Asian city in India, for example, or in East Asia, um, is there a place that sometimes it occurs to you this was what New York used to be like? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think every city, I, I don't say this just to be politic, but I think every city is a little bit different from one from another. I, I think New York uh, has been a model for many cities. And I know what you're saying is slightly different, which is, how, how much has New York progressed to a place where some of these other cities might get? Um, and I think that is true. Certainly, I've been in uh, cities, for instance, in China that have looked to New York. But, you know, the thing is, you can't really... You can make plans, and, and planning is a good thing, and very few cities do it intelligently. But ultimately, cities like each of us, have lives which are on some level unpredictable, un unplannable. And to the extent that I've seen cities, for instance, in China, which looked, have looked to New York, Shenzhen, for instance, um, they end up not being at all like it because uh, either they decide we'll do New York, but on a much bigger scale. And so they change everything about how New York evolved. Um, or they fundamentally aren't a, sort of open to the, in the way New York has been to complex populations uh, over time. So I, I don't, I, I know you're, what you're saying. Yes, I do think that there are certain evolutions that cities go through, but I do think New York has, you know, gone through a quite different history than any other, certainly different than even older cities like Paris and, and London. Um, and where there are overlaps, it is interesting what we can learn from each other. Um, Did you have but to I control, think... control hmm. yourself to some extent, Michael, in this book, The Intimate City Walking New York? Your, your, your day job is as the architecture critic of the New York Times, the one yeah. headline review of the book said, an architecture critic's street-level take on a restless metropolis. And it's a wonderful book, by the way. Um, did you have to control yourself as, quote-unquote, the New York Times' architecture critic? Did you have to sometimes take off your 
architecture critic's hat when you were walking around or planning or plotting or writing the book? Yes, of course. I mean, I think w whether I think a building, for instance, is beautiful or not, or th this is really not um, important. <laughs> I mean, in the in this context, well, think, it is because well, it is okay. It is. Thank you. But what what I mean is, we're talking really about neighborhoods as lived places as well. So it's very important that what we're talking about is not just sort of architectural highlights. There's so much in this book that is really about other things, about places that are meaningful for a lot of reasons. You showed a picture of Stonewall. I did grow up in the village. I was proud to grow up in the village, which, and I was aware of that it was, of course, a, a welcoming neighborhood for the LGBTQ community, but it, it wasn't my village. Um, and so I learned a lot uh, in um, in taking essentially that walk. Um, now the Stonewall Inn is now a national uh, monument. It's uh, it's listed. Um, it's a building which you can kind of sense there has absolutely zero architectural value. Um, it's of no distinction at all. Um, on the other hand, it's a place of great significance. So it's easy to take off my architectural hat in that case and discuss why that building, that place is meaningful, even if in fact it's a dump, which it was when it was a bar, um, when it was the original bar, a mafia run bar. Um, so I, I think there are different ways. Look, for me, Andrew, my job is not just talking about what buildings look like, but what we build for ourselves is essentially the society we are building. We, we are what we build, I think. And when we live in these places, the place buildings are lived in. Um, yeah, and, very uh, McLuhan-esque, uh, Michael. Um, I, I know that there was an interesting piece uh, written about you uh, by Margaret Sullivan a few years ago when you became um, architecture yeah. critic at the time, saying that I wasn't sure if you or, or people thought of you in the spirit of uh, Ada Louise um, Huxtable, who was uh, a previous architecture critic. Are you, uh, is, is the book itself a, a people's history, essentially, of New York? I mean, designed as such? I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I think that's that's in a way true. I mean, I talk with some very elite architects and, and others, but um, I also talk with Mancho Lopez, who's a community organizer in uh, in Mott Haven, a very poor part of the Bronx. And um, and I go around Chinatown and talk to people in the neighborhood there about what they went through during COVID and also what the meaning of that neighborhood has been to them historically as a sanctuary at a time for many generations when uh, Asians were not, um, Chinese were not allowed uh, to emigrate to the United States. So yeah, I think there is a a people's history to to this as well. I, I'm a great admirer and and was and and loved Ada Louise and was very grateful for her support. She was an extraordinary figure, and I grew up reading Ada Louise. And I think Ada Louise, like another person from my neighborhood, Jane Jacobs, was mm. attuned to the idea that cities are lived places. Buildings don't exist like sculptures uh, in some you know, museum or... Yeah, I mean, there's almost a Jane Jacobs industry now. I don't suppose she would 
be very happy with that. Let's no, end, Michael, with a couple of quick questions. No. And these are unfair questions, but it's my show, so I can ask them. Um, what's your favorite building in New York? <laughs> no, that's a deeply unfair question. And of course, I, I can't. You can give me an unfair answer, too. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I really, I, you know, I, I don't. I really don't have an answer. I will tell oh, you. Favorite restaurant. Favorite, favorite something. <laughs> if you know the world's okay. going to end tomorrow, where would you eat tonight in New York? So um, I wish I could eat in a place called the Blue Mill, which was on Commerce Street in the village where I used to go with my family. It's a, Commerce is a beautiful little curved street um, in the West Village, almost like a little secret street. And there was a place there uh, called the Blue Mill. Alas, it's not there. I was married. Uh, my wife and I had a reception in a old red sauce Italian restaurant on McDougal Street called Monty's, and it's still there. Uh, it's a hole in the wall. Um, but I sort of, I sort of like that. You know, Andrew, when you ask me about my favorite buildings, I would say that they have a lot to do with what I'm emotionally attached to. So there are many buildings that I find extraordinarily beautiful in New York. The New York Public Library on 42nd Street is is quite a beautiful building by Carrere and Hastings. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I also am attached to the public school I went to, uh, PS41, which is a kind of generic 19, early 1960s brick and glass building because it has meaning to me. And I think this is the way in which we really do. And you went from that to Yale and Harvard and the New York Times. So you're, you're one of its more distinguished uh, graduates. <laughs> and of course, the history of high schools in New York and Equality and Inequality, that's another book. Well, Michael, congratulations yeah. on the book. Really, uh, Thank you, Andrew. really wonderful achievement. I couldn't show all the photos, but the book comes. It's not only has your writing, it has some wonderful photos. So uh, a must read, I would say. Would you agree, Thank Michael? Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, if I might just say, Penguin Press, which published it, really went to great lengths to make it a very beautiful object. I, since that was not my doing, I, I can credit them to say they really went out of their way. It's, it's a it's really, it's a gorgeous book. And the photographs, which I worked on uh, with these wonderful photographers are just stunning. So I'm very grateful. And I, I think people... Um, well, Penguin had to make New York Times architecture critic happy. <laughs> and finally, finally, I got, got another unfair question, Michael. Favorite movie on New York? And I'll tell you, I mean, favorite few seconds of a movie. My favorite is the beginning of Hitchcock's uh, North by Northwest, which seems to me to be the most sort of nostalgic and romantic take on New York, but I don't know what you, there's so no, many, and it's the most cinematic of all cities and in a 20th century form, uh, you know, the, the Dwyer book says you can't walk around New York with an iPhone. He couldn't be more right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. There's so many, I look, I grew up looking at 1970s movies and all right. there's so Thanks many yeah, they're just, you know, I, I still have this image of New York from that period when New York was essentially, you know, in despair and an economic ruin. And we look back on it as a period of enormous sort of cultural efflorescence and creativity and people are nostalgic for that period. So it's also a way of saying that even through the ups and downs, and COVID was definitely a down, New York manages, I think, to 
find a way to make to turn crisis into opportunity and make itself sort of even more remarkable write another chapter I, I i find that very inspiring it helped me get through COVID. <laughs>